Welcome back to The Storyliner, the show where we turn story listeners into story makers. We've been unfolding an ongoing storyline, one chapter at a time, one creator at a time. I'm Daniel Janoff, and this is episode 8 of the podcast, our season 1 finale. This episode took a little longer to get made than some of our previous installments, in no small part because we failed to follow our own writerly advice. In pretty much every intro or outro to the show, I pitched a don't sweat it, just write it mantra. We still stand by it, but it felt different this time around. All of you who have been listening, commenting, and God bless you submitting turned our little experiment into a pretty big, pretty great story. As a result, it didn't seem right to just sit down and rattle off some pages as though they were no big deal. The magic of endings, though, is that if you're able to set your ego and your expectations aside and just hear your story, you generally find that the story knows how it wants to end. So we listened, very closely, and found this. Previously on The Storyliner, a white suburban screeched around the corner and lurched to a stop in front of Marianne and Tiffany. Italian Bob was at the wheel, with Luca Domingo Domingo riding shotgun. Bob, let's swing by Marianne's and put her to bed. She's had a rough day. Oh, we're going to her place. We need to see the scene of the robbery tonight. Obviously, I wasn't clear enough before, Ava said, and snapped her suitcase shut. I'm done with this. Done with you. Done with whoever he is. I'm leaving town for a while. I don't want to hear from you while I'm gone. And, yeah, not ever again. Why is everyone smiling? Marianne asked Tiffany. Because we're about to talk business, dear, Tiffany replied. What was Lee's offer? Domingo Domingo asked. Let's not talk numbers, Italian Bob said, turning back to Marianne. There's no way we're going to beat Lee Johnson on numbers anyway. Putting those cameras back in, Baldo said with a shake of his head. That's in very bad taste, Gwen. He succeeded, Glenn said. Now it's time for me to talk to him. Baldo sighed. No, Glenn. Now it's time for you to get into this car. The apartment was no longer empty. It was becoming cluttered by ideas. Tiffany was building an imaginary stage that she felt would make a perfect replacement for Glenn and Marianne's bedroom. Italian Bob and Luca Domingo Domingo were sitting in the kitchen, which they had decided would provide more value as a green room. Marianne's three new business partners had also decided that the empty apartment wasn't empty enough for their ambitions. To get more space, they had already reached out to Marianne's landlord to inquire about leasing the downstairs apartment as well. Marianne had long since stopped engaging with the three of them. They were caught up in a great idea feedback loop, where any suggestions were met with an outburst of brilliant and immediately paired with yet another brilliant idea. The three were so caught up in their after-hours genius that they hadn't noticed Marianne sneak away to check the Glen window on her laptop. Glenn created the web address long ago to let Marianne view whatever feed he was currently installing. He had asked her to check it from time to time, another set of eyes to ensure he hadn't started taking jobs that were too unseemly. She had never used it, but it had been hours since she'd heard from Glenn. As she scanned the window, though, all she saw was seven angles of an empty intersection, no sign of Glenn or of anything else. Marianne was cycling through the angles once more when Italian Bob set a fresh bottle of champagne next to her and said, I'm thinking I'm going to need your landlord's cell. I'm still not getting a callback from the office line. 
Marianne checked the time on her screen and said, that might be because it's three in the morning. Really? Italian Bob sighed as he checked the time on his phone. I thought we were past three and settled into at least six or so. Regardless, if we don't lock in that downstairs lease, you do realize, Marianne said, that somebody already lives there. Okay, Italian Bob shrugged at this seeming triviality and continued, but do you have the cell number? She did, but wasn't about to give it to Italian Bob, who was still speaking in a full-throated party shout in between excited swigs of champagne. I'm just saying, Marianne continued, unless the people downstairs break their lease, you'll have a hard time getting it. Italian Bob puzzled this over for a moment before inevitably grinning widely and shouting, Fucking brilliant! Tiffany, he shouted as he bounced towards her. Start jumping! Okay, Tiffany shouted and began jumping up and down without asking why. Domingo Domingo started jumping as well, then shouted, Why are we jumping? We need to piss off the neighbors, Italian Bob replied. I fucking love it, Tiffany replied. You should crank up the app, too. Perfect, Domingo Domingo shouted and immediately set their Bluetooth speaker vibrating across the floor. To ensure their noise and bouncing achieved peak annoyance, they bounced in unison, first forward, then in reverse throughout the apartment to make sure they repeatedly hit whichever section the downstairs neighbors might be in. As she watched their third reverse cycle, Marianne remembered that Glenn had set up the surveillance window with controls that enable her to reverse the footage and scrub back through whatever footage had already been recorded. After a minute of scrubbing backwards, Glenn finally entered the screen. Marianne slowed the footage to normal speed and watched as on screen an SUV door opened. She watched as Glenn spoke briefly with the man who emerged. She continued to watch as a few moments later, Glenn entered the SUV and it drove away. And then the window was once again as it had been, seven angles of an empty intersection. After scrubbing back to the live footage, Marianne estimated Glenn had gotten into the SUV over an hour ago. Marianne was brought back to the apartment by the sound of Tiffany shrieking as she slipped on a puddle of spilled champagne. The bottle she'd been holding crashed to the ground, sending a shimmer of glass and bubbly liquid in all directions. Eek, so sorry, Tiffany shouted with a grin that didn't look very sorry. Domingo Domingo took a step toward Marianne and said, I would clean it up, but it's been a while since... He trailed off and turned back to Italian Bob. Bob, what do you use? Like a sponge? Use your jacket, Italian Bob said. When you're done, you can get a replacement at the Club Monaco around the corner. Domingo Domingo spun toward Italian Bob and pointed angrily as he hissed, I have never shopped at Club Monaco, Bob. You keep saying that shit everywhere we go, and people will believe that it's true. Italian Bob walked over and hugged Domingo Domingo apologetically. You're right, you're right, he said to Domingo Domingo. Then he grinned widely and continued, People do believe it's true. But Marianne barely noticed them. The moment the bottle hit the floor, Marianne had been reminded to pull out her phone. In an instant, she had Glenn's location up in stalk me mode. Now she watched as his blue dot moved slowly away from the city. She found herself wanting to tap it, drag it back toward her own, but she could only watch as it drifted away. Italian Bob caught a glance at Marianne's phone and said, Look at that. Marianne, the only sensible one among us, is apping in a cleaning lady. No, Marianne said, still watching the dot. It's my boyfriend. That's one loyal boyfriend, Italian Bob said as he watched the dot. But isn't he moving in the wrong direction? Glenn finally realized where he'd seen Baldo's driver before. 
He's the cook from your restaurant, isn't he? Glenn asked. Baldo nodded and said, He does a lot of things. They were far from the city now, driving down an unlit interstate Glenn wasn't familiar with. He hadn't bothered to ask where they were going. I think I've spotted a genetic trait that you and Lee share, Baldo said. With most people, you can tell from their face if they're thinking about something. But with Lee, I found you can also tell how fast the wheels are spinning. You're the same way. How fast are my wheels spinning? Glenn asked. Too fast, Baldo replied. Okay, Glenn said. Then help me slow down. Sure, Baldo replied. Some basics then. Lee and I ended up in the same group home in our late teens. Neither of us had been adopted. I was too old, and Lee had some health issues. What were the issues? Glenn asked. Not really my place to say, Baldo replied, and then continued. After a few miserable months in the group home, we realized that between us we possessed everything we needed to get out of it. I could line up families who would adopt us for a price. Lee was already contracting for a number of tech startups by then and was able to get the money we needed, but that was the extent of our relationship. Once the paperwork was done and we were out of the home, I didn't expect to hear from Lee again. Baldo checked his watch and then leaned forward and said to the driver, You can slow down a little. Are we running early? Glenn asked. Somewhat, Baldo replied. Nothing you need to worry about, though. Do I seem worried? Glenn asked. Baldo looked at Glenn for a long moment, then said, After almost ten years of no contact, I'm reconnected with Lee, who has just discovered the name of his birth father, who is the same man responsible for the death of my own father. What would you make of that, Glenn? I'd say it was like deja vu, Glenn said, mixed in with a little bit of fate. But I never thought there was such a thing. I never did either, Baldo replied. That's it, Tiffany shouted over the roar of the engine. Would you stop fucking saying that, Italian Bob shouted back. It isn't a fucking Uber. We don't know what kind of car we're even looking for. They were once more an Italian Bob suburban. But this time, Bob's assistant, Jules, a frail 20-year-old whose eyes looked to be watering with fear, was at the wheel. He was flooring the vehicle as Bob had been ordering him to do. Go faster, Bob shouted at him. Jules, who hadn't said a word to any of them since getting behind the wheel, finally shouted back, Bob, I am going 120 miles an hour. I literally cannot go any fucking faster. Right fucking on, Jules. That's the spirit, Bob shouted and slapped him on the shoulder, causing the car to lurch dangerously into the left lane. Do that again, Domingo Domingo shouted at Italian Bob, and I will euthanize you on the spot. I'm trying to save a life here, goddammit, Italian Bob shouted at him. Marianne's fucking boyfriend has been kidnapped. Everybody shut up, Marianne shouted back at them. She was in the front seat next to Jules, glancing up between the blue dot on her phone and the car up ahead. She pointed at the black SUV ahead of them and said, I think that's it. I knew it, Tiffany shouted. You said that about the last 20 cars we passed. This is fucking amazing, Tiffany shouted. Can we do this every night? I'm also thrilled that we found the car, Domingo Domingo said to Marianne. He patted his suit pockets and continued, but I'm a little light. Just ram it, Tiffany shouted. Better to learn it now than later, I suppose, Italian Bob shouted, but it's becoming obvious that none of you have any kidnap rescue experience. Jules, flash the brights a few times. Jules did, and after a few moments, the black SUV ahead of them slowed and pulled over. Jules also slowed and pulled over just behind it. The SUV cut its engine and went dark. Jules cut the Suburban's engine as well, and on the unlit interstate, Suddenly, everything was deep blackness.
Somebody turn on a light, goddammit, Italian Bob shouted. In the back seat, Domingo Domingo switched on the overhead light, but as he did, he shrieked when he saw the driver of the black SUV standing in front of his window. The driver didn't react to the shriek. He only leaned in slightly to get a sense of who was in the vehicle. After a moment, Marianne rolled down her window and said to the driver, We'd like to speak to Glenn, please. The driver didn't reply. He scanned the vehicle interior once more and walked back to the black SUV. A moment later, another figure emerged from the black SUV and walked to their car. It was Glenn. Marianne jumped out of the car and hugged him tightly. Hey, he said, hugging her back. How are you? She whacked him on the shoulder and said, How am I? I'm running you down on the side of the road. What are you doing? Why haven't I heard from you? I'm working, Glenn said. Marianne pointed at the SUV and shouted, This is not work. You are not working, and I am fucking worried about you, so don't give me that bullshit. But Glenn smiled back and said, I have to see Lee. No, you don't, Marianne shouted. I don't want any more traffic to my fucking site or any of it. I want you. I want you too, Glenn said. They were silent for a moment, then Glenn let go of her. But I have to see Lee, Glenn said, and took a step away from her. Marianne opened her mouth to object, but he cut her off. I'll see you back at the apartment, he said, and turned back to the black SUV. Marianne watched as he got in and the SUV pulled away. The house was at the end of a long dirt road, a 15-minute drive from the expressway exit. As dark as it had seemed on the unlit interstate, the seemingly impenetrable walls of trees running along either side of road made it seem far darker. They absorbed the brights from the SUV, making them seem to grow dimmer as they drove in deeper. The house at the end of the road was small and ordinary, not seeming to merit the length of road that drove up to it. As they pulled up, though, Glenn noticed that someone inside had switched on every light in the house. The driver slowed to a stop, then got out and opened Glenn's door. I hope you both get what you came out here for, Baldo said. You think that's possible? Glenn asked as he got out. Hard to say, Baldo replied. I think I know why Lee's here, but you? Baldo shrugged. Glenn nodded, then walked to the door. Glenn knocked, and a voice immediately answered. It's open. Glenn stepped inside to find that the house was completely empty. The entryway gave him views of both the living and dining rooms. The house was old enough that Glenn could see rust stains on the floor where an old metal shelf might have been, or discoloration on a carpet or a wall where a couch had once sat. But now there was nothing. In the kitchen, Glenn could smell something cooking from beyond the dining room and walked toward it. He pushed open the door at the far side of the dining room to find Lee standing in a well-lit kitchen. He stood at the stove in a kitchen that, like the rest of the house, showed the ghosts of long-ago habitation, but was now empty except for two folding chairs stacked against the wall. Lee leaned against the stove. He was boiling a pot of hot dogs. He forked a hot dog out and said, Want one? No thanks, Glenn replied. Really? Lee said. He slid the hot dog back into the pot and gestured around the bare kitchen, continuing, I'm afraid it's all I've got. That's okay all the same, Glenn replied. They're not very good for you. He chuckled and said, Well, where were you when I was growing up? Then laughed louder at his slip and said, I mean, obviously, I know where you were. I know there's nothing I can say to make up for what I did, Glenn said, and nothing I can do. Lee cut him off saying, You think? I do agree that there's nothing you could say to make up for running out on Ava and me, of course. Glenn said, I'm sorry, but Lee cut him off again. 
No, you had it right the first time, Glenn, Lee said with a tight grin. There's nothing, really nothing you can say, and definitely. Please don't say you're sorry. But maybe there is something you can do. Glenn didn't reply. Lee gestured at the two folding chairs. You want to sit, Lee asked. Sorry it's not more hospitable. I still haven't furnished the place. This is yours, Glenn asked. I lived here most of my childhood, actually, Lee replied, then added, You sure you don't want a hot dog? Glenn shook his head. Lee nodded and said, But you will sit down, right? We're here to talk. Glenn nodded and sat down. So this was the home of your adoptive parents, Glenn asked. Foster parents, Lee corrected. Not sure if Baldo explained, but when I was three, I was diagnosed with autistic spectrum disorder. High functioning, very high functioning, if I do say so myself. But prospective adoptees look at this on a kid's bio, and they start looking elsewhere. I'm sorry, Glenn said. The moment Glenn said it, Lee grabbed the boiling pot by the handle and whipped it at Glenn's head. He ducked, and the pot barely missed his head, thudding against the kitchen's wood paneling before spilling out onto the linoleum. Lee took a deep breath, then grinned. I told you not to say you're sorry, Glenn. Glenn was silent. You must realize I'm not your biggest fan, right? I put a great deal of time and effort into dredging up your past, attempting to ruin your relationship. Why would you come here? To talk, Glenn said. Lee sighed and said, right, let's talk then. Lee sat down in the other folding chair and continued. You were asking about my foster parents. I had a few, but these were my last ones. They weren't really parents, of course. I was more of a revenue stream for them. Lee reached down and picked up one of the hot dogs that was on the floor. And this is what they fed me, Lee continued, for nine years. Two for lunch, two for dinner. They told me I should be grateful because they were keeping me alive without beating or molesting me. But it turns out, if you only eat hot dogs for the majority of your childhood, it does a number on your organs. I get migraines like you wouldn't believe. My arms and hands are numb most of the time. I had to get a bag attached to my hip because I couldn't naturally expel my own bodily waste. Lee looked at the hot dog for a moment, then flicked it away. Anyway, once I had the funding in place, I hired some contractors to secure the house, secure my foster parents, and feed them hot dogs. A lot of hot dogs. Do you want to kill me? Glenn asked. Of course I do, Lee said with a grin. After a moment... He got up and said, can I show you something? This was the office, Lee said as he led Glenn into the small room. Like the rest of the house, they were only faint reminders of the furniture that had once been in the room. But in its center there remained an old desk and an equally old-looking desktop computer. Lee pulled out the desk chair and said, Have a seat. Glenn sat down, and Lee stepped behind the desk, drumming his fingers on the computer's ancient-looking CRT monitor. My foster father, he only used it for porn and email. My foster mother, she liked that she could get all the tabloid gossip without having to go to the store and actually buy a tabloid. I used it to create a new life for myself. Lee reached under the desk and flipped a switch. A moment later, Glenn could hear a faint buzz as the monitor began to warm up. The CPU's loud fan switched on as well, causing Lee to chuckle. I gave it new guts, he said, but I kept the housing in that fan. For me, that was always the sound of possibility. Is this what you wanted to show me? Glenn asked. Watch the screen, 
Lee said as it continued to warm up. As the image sharpened, it began to take the form of a woman's silhouette. A moment later, Glenn could see that it was Ava looking directly into the camera. From the audio of your last phone call and the images I'd been getting from this feed, Lee said, I'd assumed she was going away, some sort of vacation. But then she came back, almost as soon as she left, set her suitcase down and set herself in front of one of the cameras I'd had installed. She's been sitting there just like this for hours. What do you think she's doing? I have no idea, Glenn replied. Really? Lee said. I think she's waiting for something. Waiting for what? Glenn asked. Lee handed Glenn a phone and said, waiting for you to call her. Glenn looked at the phone but didn't take it. If you really were listening to our call, he said, you know she doesn't want to hear from me again. I did hear that, Lee said, but I've also heard that people sometimes don't tell the truth. Look at her. She's waiting for something. She doesn't even know what yet, but she'll realize what it is once you say it to her. What am I going to say? Glenn asked. You're going to tell her why you left, Lee replied. She knows why I left, Glenn said. Did you ever actually tell her, though? Lee asked. No, Glenn replied. No, because you just disappeared, Lee said, and gestured with the phone once more. But now, you're going to tell her. Glenn didn't take the phone. Lee rolled his eyes and said, Come on, Glenn. You don't think I'm here alone, do you? The house is secured. So hit the top button on the speed dial, look into the screen, and be honest for a change. After a moment, Glenn took the phone and pressed the speed dial button. On screen, he saw Ava's phone begin to ring. She picked it up and answered immediately, not bothering to look at the caller ID. Hello, she said. It's Glenn, he replied. Why are you calling, Glenn, she asked. Whether she knew it or not, Ava's eyes were still locked on the camera, looking straight through Lee's screen. I'm calling to tell you why I left, Glenn said, back then. Ava was silent for a moment and then said, Okay. I've given myself a number of reasons over the years that felt better than this one, Glenn began. I could give one of those reasons now, but I think you deserve whatever truth I can give. And that truth is, I think I left because I didn't care. I don't think I ever really, truly cared about you. I know I didn't care about myself. And if I'm being truly honest with you, at the time, I didn't think you had it in you to go through with a pregnancy. We were both very selfish then, I think, wanting desperately to become something other than what we were. I've always felt a lot of guilt, obviously, for what I did, and rightly so. I think that's why I became interested in surveillance. I've always kept a camera trained on me ever since then. And I think it's because if I knew someone was watching, even if it was just myself, I'd be forced to be something other, something better than the person I have always believed myself to be. I imagine that my leaving made you feel, among many things, very unwanted. But the truth is, I don't think I really wanted myself then either. I figured that if you were foolish enough to want me, it would be foolish of me to want you. And it would be even more foolish for us to make a new life together. Even though Glenn knew she couldn't see him, he'd unconsciously lowered his gaze, unable to meet hers. When he looked back up, he could see she was crying but with her mouth covered by a hand so that he wouldn't hear it. That's why I left, Glenn said, forcing himself once more to meet her gaze as she continued to silently cry. After a moment, Ava took a deep breath and removed the hand from her mouth. Okay, 
Ava said. Thanks for calling, Glenn. On screen, he saw her cover her mouth once more. She took another deep breath and once more removed the hand from her mouth, then said, Bye. She hung up, and although Glenn could no longer hear her, he could see her breaking down with sobs that shook her entire body. Glenn switched the monitor off. He stared at the blank screen for a moment, then looked back up to Lee, who was still standing behind the monitor. Glenn handed the phone back to Lee, who said, How do you feel? I'm not sure, Glenn said. Lee nodded, grinning slightly. How did I know you'd say that, he said, then slammed the phone down hard on Glenn's temple. When Glenn woke up, he was once again in the back of Baldo's SUV, slumped against one of the door handles. He lifted his head slightly, but quickly lowered it when he felt a repeated stab of pain where he'd been struck. A potent sunrise coming over the horizon snapped his eyes shut again. "'What did you say to him?' Baldo asked. "'What?' Glenn replied, still uncertain where he was or what was going on. "'Lee had asked me to take you to the house,' Baldo continued." but when I had asked if he needed us to stay and take you back to the city, he said no. A one-way trip? Glenn asked, rubbing his head and trying once more to sit up. Whatever you said, Balder replied, got you a ride back. Lee also told me to give you this. Baldo reached into the seat pocket in front of him and pulled out a manila folder, which he handed to Glenn. Glenn opened it and saw that it was a press kit for a company he was only vaguely familiar with. Dately? Glenn asked. I hadn't heard of it either, Baldo replied. But if you believe their hype, they can determine, apparently, with some degree of certainty, whether or not a prospective couple are compatible. Some proprietary chemical psychological evaluation. Lee had initially invested on a lark, but it appears he just purchased a controlling share, significantly increased its funding, and made you its CEO. What? Glenn asked, flipping quickly through the press kit. Why would he do that? Glenn continued rifling through the press kit, as though it could somehow provide the explanation. It didn't. But on the back cover of the manila folder, Glenn found one, handwritten, he assumed, by Lee. So the next Glenn and Ava never meet and never make the same mistake, it read. Normally, I'd say you'd have to ask him why, Waldo continued. But he told me you shouldn't try to contact him again. And... I think that considering Lee's situation, you should respect that. What situation? Glenn asked. Baldo looked at Glenn for a long moment, then said, He's dying, Glenn. His body's been breaking down for years. It's probably down to months now. Before Glenn could reply, the driver slowed to a stop. Glenn looked away from Baldo and realized they'd taken him back to his building. The driver got out and opened Glenn's door. Good luck, Glenn, Baldo said. I've only known Lee to make smart investments. You should take some comfort in the fact that he's investing in you. The apartment was still littered with champagne bottles. Once the novelty of the sunrise had passed and it was simply daytime, Marianne had considered cleaning up. But there were still no garbage bags, no sponges, and no paper towels. And her phone had begun to blow up, too. 
an ongoing thread of texts and voicemails about Glenn, that she should Google him, that he was trending. She was reading one of the articles when Glenn opened the door to the apartment. Marion rushed to the door and was about to embrace him when she noticed the cut above his eye. What happened to you? she asked. Glenn grinned slightly and said, A lot. He glanced around the apartment and said, You've been busy too. I have, Marianne said. More like fucking crazy. But good crazy, I think. And I cannot wait to tell you about it. But I obviously need to apologize first. For what? Glenn asked. For doubting you, Marianne replied. You weren't lying, and I should have trusted you. That was clearly work. What do you mean? Glenn said. I know now. Everybody knows now. You're the new CEO of fucking Dately, she said, holding up her phone to show him an article about Glenn Esposito, the unlikeliest newcomer to the startup world. How did that even happen? Marianne asked excitedly. You were just on your way to see him? I was, Glenn said. And I'm sorry I didn't tell you about him sooner. And Ava. I honestly don't care, Marianne interrupted. It's just good to have you here. Watching you walk away on the side of the road, I didn't know if it was... I just didn't know what was going to happen. She wiped the tears away and chuckled as she said, Can we just lie down on our lump of blankets, compare some notes, and figure out who had a more fucked up night? I can't, Glenn said. Why not? Marianne asked. Because I can't stay here anymore, Glenn said. What are you talking about? Marianne asked. Do you remember what we were planning to do? Glenn asked. When I picked you up and we crossed the threshold. Uh, yeah, Marianne replied. Of course I do. How come we never just went downtown and saw the justice of the peace? Glenn asked. Because there was a lot going on, Marianne replied. There was, and it would have still been easy, Glenn said. Fifteen minutes to get there, maybe ten minutes to do the paperwork. We could have been back here in an hour, but we never did. What are you saying? Marianne asked. I'm saying when we came back and found the apartment empty, Glenn said. It was like we were being introduced to each other all over again. What the fuck are you saying? Marianne shouted. I did something stupid to promote myself that suddenly changes everything? You don't think that what I did to Ava and Lee changes everything, Glenn replied. That was a long time ago, Marianne shouted. You're a different person. After a moment, Glenn said, I thought so too. And I think that's why I thought it was okay to never tell you. Which proves that I'm really not a different person at all. And that's it, Marianne said. Because we got sidetracked by this stupid apartment. That's it. Just fuck it. We never went to City Hall, Glenn said. And the apartment had nothing to do with it. Marianne opened her mouth to speak, but was interrupted by a loud push message chime from her phone. Glenn's phone chimed as well. Out of habit, they both glanced at their screens and simultaneously saw the message. Great news. Your theft insurance claim has been approved for payment. Tap here for more information. So that's the end. Of season one, anyway. We hope you liked it, because we're already working on season two. So keep us in your podcast queue and keep an eye out for some great bonus stuff too. We're also going to recut all eight episodes and post them here as a single audio file so you can hear the story in its entirety. If you have some thoughts about season one, we would love, really love to hear them. We've got a site, we've got email, we've got a Facebook page. Connect with us. Writing is a bit like talking to yourself, but making a podcast is literally 
just talking to yourself. So every bit of feedback we've gotten from you has been a welcome reminder that we haven't gone crazy yet. It has meant and continues to mean a lot. Thank you. One of the most surprising bits of show feedback we've gotten thus far is that people have actually enjoyed listening to me rattle on about the creative process. So for the five of you out there that this applies to, I have this parting thought. In our first episode, I referred to the Storyliner as an experiment, and it really was. I'm not aware of a podcast, TV show, web series, etc. that is doing storytelling in quite this way, which meant that we were either geniuses for pushing forward with the Storyliner, or really dumb. But now that we're on the other side of season one, I don't feel like a genius or an idiot. I just feel relieved that we actually followed through on this. There were a million reasons not to do the Storyliner. A million reasons why it wouldn't work. What if at some point in the process, we regretted doing this? But when I pull out my phone and I see all the episodes we posted and think about the great experiences we had making them, I think to myself, Jesus, what if we hadn't done this? What if this had ended up being just another idea that we shrugged off as too hard, too costly, or too uncertain? It's all too uncertain, isn't it? There's no good reason to write another song, paint another painting, or design yet another cool t-shirt. No one actually needs these things, and we have too many of them as it is. But now that I've done it, I realize how much I needed the Storyliner. And so I would say to you, painter, songwriter, cool t-shirt designer, or God help you, aspiring writer, the only person who really needs you to produce your masterpiece is you. So get started. Today's episode was read by Michelle Monaforti. Music and sound design composed by Stefan Bergliel. Our logo and site were designed by The Apartment. This episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Look like an expert right from the start by making your website with Squarespace. Its award-winning templates are the most beautiful way to present your ideas online. Stand out with a professional website, portfolio, or online store. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website.